0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Good morning, this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, Fiji's Prime Minister issues a ceremonial apology to Kiribati in an effort to get the country back inside the Pacific Islands Forum.
2: We apologise for how Fiji had acted at the time of a crisis. In our association.
1: The question now is: Was the apology accepted? And has China got the United States running to make security deals in the Pacific? That's the speculation as US and PNG authorities negotiate an agreement.
3: The uh, United States of America have taken a fairly uh, serious role uh, now in the Pacific uh, since uh, China and uh, Solomon Islands have had their. Uh, agreement
1: and if you've seen the recent blockbuster film avatar the way of water you may have noticed some specific undertones so is it cultural appropriation respectful inspiration or something in between we'll discuss that and a lot more today on the show i'm priyanka srinivasan so glad to have your company but first, Jacinda Ardern's shock resignation as New Zealand's Prime Minister has paved the way for some new faces in the country's highest political offices, including a historic appointment of the first Pacific Islander to serve as Deputy Prime Minister. Carmel Sepuloni will serve as New Zealand's 20th Deputy PM. It is
0: very hard to fathom that a working class girl from Waitara who turned Westy that that person can become the Deputy Prime Minister of New Zealand. I am proudly Samoan, Tongan and New Zealand European and represent generations of New Zealanders with mixed heritage.
1: Ms. Sepuloni will serve as deputy to incoming Prime Minister Chris Hipkins, who will be sworn in as Ms. Arden's replacement later this week. Joining us now to tell us more about New Zealand's new Deputy Prime Minister is Auckland University of Technology lecturer and writer Richard Pamatao. Good morning to you, Richard.
0: Um, Morena Priyanka.
1: Um, now, we just heard there Ms. Cappelloni making reference to her Pacifica heritage as she accepted the appointment as Deputy Prime Minister. Now, she says she represents New Zealanders with mixed heritage. Can you tell us, Richard, what is the significance of her appointment to New Zealand?
0: Well, the first thing is um, the mixed heritage uh, is really, really important because there is increasingly no such thing as a single ethnicity Person in New Zealand, we are seeing a lot of intermarriage or or mixed race um, union. So, Carmel is the embodiment of that Samoan father, European mother, Tongan grandfather. What's significant about it is um, not the fact that she is just somebody who has mixed ethnicity, what's significant is she has that on top of extraordinary competence and the ability to communicate and reach out across all stratas in society. She's really adept at getting on with people at, for want of a better term, the grassroots level but she's also very, very good mixing at the um, more the higher levels of, of society in a socio-economic sense. So Her hybridity gives her uh, the ability to navigate all sorts of areas, and she's clever, she's really smart. And I've watched her career as a former journalist from when she first stepped into the fray. She's a listener, and she's a really hard worker. She, She checks everything, and then she asks, more information because she doesn't want to make
1: mistakes. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about that career, Richard, because some of us outside New Zealand might not know exactly who Carmel Cepeloni is. What is her background? Where did she come from and how did she get to now the spot as Deputy PM?
0: So she comes, as she said, from a pretty ordinary working class background, Taranaki Waitara. Her father, a freezing worker, etc. Her mother worked in a a clothing factory. So she didn't come from an elite, as it were, family, but she's also somebody who listened at school and her former headmistresses had talked about her ability and her desire to do lots of things. She came to Auckland, um, graduated with a diploma in teaching, and then went to the Auckland University and was a student mentor trying to get students often from less fortunate backgrounds further up the education ladder and the further up the education ladder they go, um, the more able they are to be earning good incomes and lifting their families up. Then she became involved in politics. She joined the Labour Party in 2008 and she was handpicked at that stage as by actually the former Prime Minister Helen Clark as somebody with talent. Ability and drive, and she's part of a broader cohort, mostly of women of Pacific descent
4: mm.
0: who have risen through the ranks. So, one of her contemporaries, Josephine Bartley, is an Auckland city councillor. So, she sits in that arena. She's passionate about the arts, she's passionate about uh, business, and she wants people to get on and be better. She's had a couple of really tough portfolios. um, ACC, the Accident Compensation Corporation, and the Ministry of Social Development. And she's making some inroads there. She has, of course, cocked criticism because people don't think she's making enough change quickly enough. But she's more than capable of, you know, weathering that kind of political beating. And she's also quite... And I say this from a personal level because I've known her in a semi-social basis. She's quite funny and and doesn't mind having a good time.
1: Oh, well, that, that's, that can be useful. I mean, considering that glowing uh, resume there, Richard, I mean, we've, we've got that background, but we've also got to think strategically, I guess, when it comes to politics in New Zealand. There is an election coming up this year in October what does it mean for New Zealand's Labour Party to make this appointment to elect the the first Pacific uh, Pacifica Deputy Prime Minister to this position?
0: From a, from a political strategy point of view, it does enable them to anchor and secure what people often call the Pacific vote. So that's a large population, particularly in Auckland, that's located in the poorer suburbs in South Auckland. It enables her also to reach into those mixed, mixed identity populations where the mother or the, one of the parents is Pacific, And these are people who might be sliding around and thinking, I don't have to vote for Labour as my parents did. She also has the ability to reach into Māori. She's quite well respected in the Māori population. So she will be an efficient hook there as well. But at the same time, she is an MP in West Auckland. She calls herself a Westie. Um, For people who live in Sydney, they'll know what a Westie is. There's a kind of a a way of being. She, She really is able to articulate to that population as well. And there is a bluntness to her that I think people who are used to compliant and humble behaviour from people of Pacific descent, will recognise as I'm not somebody to be trifled with. So she's got a strength to her, which will be useful in combating the opposition National Party who will hammer her and Labour, for sure, because this is going to be a very toughly contested election. But also I think her ability in the art, culture and heritage sector will stand her in good stead with the art crowd, for want of a better term, because she has made some some things happen there. And then in terms of the Ministry for Social Development, she's lifted benefit rates. So she has a following from people who think she can get things done but she also will have to be aware of the criticism from people who say she hasn't done enough
1: mm. If you are just chanting in here to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia I'm Priyanka Srinivasan and with us is Richard Pamatatao he's a New Zealand writer and university lecturer and as we're hearing uh, knows Carmel Cepuloni who's just made history by being appointed as New Zealand's new deputy prime minister she She's the first Pacific Islander to hold that position. Now, we've been talking about the significance of her election uh, there, or her appointment, I should say, uh, Richard. What's the reaction been like from the Pacifica community? I mean, I've heard some leaders say that this means a lot for Pacifica daughters, sisters, mothers, who can now look up to Carmel uh, as the new deputy PM and say, you know, anything is possible. Is, is that what you're hearing as well, Richard?
0: People are the, the people in the Pacific population that I've had engagement with in the last sort of the weekend are thrilled by her elevation. And they see it, if they're particularly, particularly politically savvy, they see it as a continuation of um, work that was done when Lua Manavau Winnie Laban was the first Pacific minister in the Labour Party. And what we do see in Labour is the ability to reach out to the Pacific population and there are there's a very strong cohort of Pacific MPs in Labour. What it does mean, though, is it's up a notch now. She is the Deputy Prime Minister. She's more important in a political sense than being a minister and that means there will be more scrutiny on her from the Pacific population to do more because often there is a view that by some people in the Pacific population that Labour rests on the Pacific vote without doing more for that population. So she will be pushed by the community, but I was at a workshop yesterday, and when it was announced, the workshop um, started cheering and clapping and taking pictures to send to her. So she has a... She has support. She has very strong support. And it will be up to Labor to capitalise on that, to secure those votes if it wants to hang on to the Treasury benches.
1: Mm, I mean, given that, because there has been criticism of the Labor government there in New Zealand, particularly around its reaction to the COVID-19 or its response to the COVID-19 pandemic and the impact that that may have had disproportionately on Pacific Islander communities there in New Zealand, it, could that be a feature in the upcoming elections, that sort of criticism?
0: That criticism um, will be apparent in the up- upcoming election scrap. But we did see the Pacific population mobilise once the Labour-led government under Jacinda Ardern recognised that it had got some of the strategy wrong and it was the Pacific community particularly the tongans and the samoans who mobilized the most enormous um, vaccination events so the, the criticism will be there but generally it will come more from the european population who at the moment are whining about anything that they think that labor has not done properly i don't i'd argue that the covid response while it has been criticised by the Pacific population and many leaders, people have moved on from that. And and the, the broader issues are going to be housing, health, education.
1: Mm. Now, Richard, uh, earlier you mentioned uh, Carmel's um, humour that you've uh, perhaps noticed in some of your uh, meetings with her. Now, many outside New Zealand, myself included, didn't really know Carmel uh, Cepuloni before this appointment. But I do remember she did go viral a couple of years ago, as we say, um, for this Zoom TV interview with Radio Samoa. I want to play you a grab from it now
0: connect connector services with um social services. Um hang on a second, my son's
5: just in the room I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm sorry, Tim. I'm That's okay. That's, okay. <laughs> That's what I'm family sorry. is all about, I'm really <laughs> so
1: sorry. Now, if you don't I'm remember it, that, that was an interview with Carmel Cepolino, who's, I understand, a minister at that time with Radio Samoa, as you could have heard, I think his son walked in. Um, now, Richard, do you remember that? Did that make waves uh, uh, or in I New Zealand? Do,
0: I, I do remember that. The boy walked in with a carrot and... <laughs> <laughs> and what, what I think is really interesting about that is, A, Carmel didn't erupt and, and you know, turn into a ferocious working mother. She thought, gosh, my son's walked in with a carrot. I just need to proceed and try and um, make this as normal as possible. And I think what was interesting about that is lots of people were working from home, dealing with Zoom, dealing with family, dogs you know the husband the wife the children so was very humorous and very very funny and but you got a sense of her lightness and that and that quite infectious laughter and so that is is how she can be socially and I don't socialize with her but I've been at events where you can see her with a group of people and she is having a belly laugh she's chuckling she's laughing She's having a lot of fun. And I have seen her, I I sit on the New Zealand Book Awards Trust, and she, as arts minister, has, um, and I'll tell you something quite funny, has opened, you know, she opened it, and I got a text from her saying, are you there? And I said, yes, I am. And she said, we're a bit late, but do you think you could bring me a glass of red? I'll be sitting in row, you know, one next to whoever it was. And and it's that sense of kind of humanity. Can you get me a glass of red? And I send a text back. Any preference? And, <laughs> and she said, no, just something in a glass that's red.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so
0: she's very human. You know, who doesn't want a glass of wine? Sort
1: of <laughs> yes, and we'll see what uh, what that humanity and, and humour brings to uh, New Zealand's politics. Uh, Richard, thank I, you so I much. Yes, I just think there's one other
0: point that is really important. So we've seen a lot of misogyny directed to um, the outgoing prime minister and other women in politics. And, you know, you saw it in Australia with the way Julia Gillard was mm. treated. But Carmel Cipoloni is extremely smart, extremely tough and extremely wily. So she was being interviewed by a female um, interviewer. And when they were off here in the ad break, the interviewer said to her, can't you see that I'm trying to help your career, Carmel? And Carmel said, I'm not answering your questions, which are way out of line. And then the interview went back. And what that demonstrates is don't muck muck around with her. She she can see through people. She has that ability and the toughness. And I think that's what we will see when things get really testing in the election.
1: Yes, yes. Well, yes, we'll certainly see that on show with the election coverage. I'm sure um, things will get quite testy, as you said, Richard. Thank you for joining us on the show and and talking about this uh, historic appointment. Thank you. That was Richard Pamatatao, university lecturer and writer, speaking about that, well, historic appointment, the first Pacific Islander to serve as Deputy Prime Minister. That's Carmel Cepoloni. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. I hope you're having a lovely Monday morning. One of the biggest rifts in Pacific regional politics could soon be heading towards repair following a visit to Kiribati by the chair of the Pacific Islands Forum. Kiribati walked out of the Pacific regional body last year after Micronesian countries objected to the election of Henry Puna as Forum Secretary General. On Friday, though, Fiji Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka delivered an apology to Kiribati and carried out a traditional ceremony seeking forgiveness from Kiribati President Tanes Mamal.
2: My hope that we would be seeing your government endorse the return of this great nation to your family in the Pacific. As we presented the Tambua this afternoon, Your Excellency, there were words of apologies in the presentation. We apologize for how Fiji had acted at the time of the crisis in our association, in our family. And when you accepted it, you accepted our apologies. We thank you. And we look forward to seeing you in Fiji in the near future.
1: That was Fiji's Prime Minister and the Chair of the Pacific Islands Forum, Sitiveni Rambuka, and Kiribati President Tanes Mamo gave this response to him.
6: I would like to sincerely thank you and to to commend your coalition governments for taking a bold but humble step to restore the Pacific way of trust, respect and understanding within the region.
1: Our discussion this afternoon has been very positive. And that was I Kiribati President, Tanis Amamo. So, will Kiribati return to the Pacific Islands Forum? That's the big question. And the country is expected to issue a statement this week on whether it plans to return. And staying in Fiji, its government has announced the return of payments to the University of the South Pacific more than three years after the money had stopped. An initial payment of $7 million will mark the end of a standoff between the university and the Fijian government, which culminated in the deportation of its vice chancellor, Professor Pal Aluwalia. Professor Aluwalia who now works remotely from the university's Nauru and Samoa campuses welcomed the development and says a visit to Fiji is also in the cards.
6: Oh, look, I think it's a tremendous help. Uh, obviously, uh, it's, it's a long ways to uh, the, the funding that's, uh, that's owed to the university by the Fiji government. But, you know, we realize that these are very early days and, uh, and we really want to work with the, the government, which is what they've, uh, they've indicated, that they will work with the vice chancellor, however we do it. Uh, you know. I mean, I have also just read the um, uh, and and heard the current prime minister make those statements. From um, you know, obviously we're we're relieved and elated uh, at the same time that uh, that this will happen. And more importantly, anything else, this is to help our students.
7: What is the total amount of money that that uh, is thought to be owed to USP by the government?
6: I think at the end of November it was about ninety-six million PGN dollars. Uh, so there's a sta- substantial amount of money, and uh, you know we are just very happy about the commitment. And uh, I am very keen uh, to work with the government to arrive at a uh, you know a suitable outcome.
7: So, what are the main areas of the university that uh, are most in most urgent need of that funding?
6: Well, I think a lot of it is about uh, maintenance issues. Uh, I mean, I think some of it will. uh, we're we're very keen to invest in our uh, online delivery modes and and also in terms of our staffing to make sure that we have the best staff available. Uh, My priorities have always been providing a high-quality education for for our students, and I believe that Pacific Islanders should not be shortchanged in any way compared to other regions of the world.
7: With this funding shortfall uh, that has occurred over the last few years, uh, do you feel like USP's standing has fallen in that time?
6: This is kind of ironic because the opposite has happened. I think we not only learned how to live uh, within our means, but uh, for the first time ever, for two years in a row, we've been probably ranked, very highly ranked in the impact rankings. We were, you know recognized for crisis management and the worry ranking. So on every front, I think the university is doing exceptionally well, and we've learned how to live within our means. Uh, but of course, you know, when when you are faced with these sorts of things, you always prioritize, and we prioritize our students uh, over everything else. But uh, but it has come at a cost, with particularly with issues about, about maintenance or about you know, making sure that, the, the real issue is not in our Tala campus, but our regional campuses. Our, some of our regional campuses are in fairly dilapidated states, uh, and, and that was an issue that I inherited. Uh, and the idea was that we would begin to address that, and uh, we just weren't able to do it. We did some of it, but uh, but very little. But now, moving moving forward, given that 50% of our students are based in the region, uh, we have a real opportunity to start uh, start fixing some of these
7: issues. In another interview, you said you wanted USP to become one of the great universities of the world. Do you think that's possible now under the new government and with these renewed funding streams?
6: Absolutely. I mean, look, first of all, I think let's put this into context. We're, we're located in the developing world. We've done exceptionally well to be ranked amongst the best universities in the world. I mean, you know, we're amongst the top realistically, we're in the top 6 to 7% of the universities in the world. I think quality education at a very little cost to our, uh, our our students. So I think I think we're a good, solid university. I think we have every opportunity now that the, the more funding will come in to become a great university. And staff and students are vital uh, to me in, in making that ambition.
7: You yourself were in exile for the last several years, running USP from Samoa. Uh, have you set foot in Fiji again now under the new government? And what's that felt like?
6: No, I haven't been to Fiji yet. Uh, I've just come back from the manual leave. And, of course, uh, you know, I've been exceptionally busy. And next week I'm at in the University of New Caledonia. We're doing some collaboration. But it, I intend to visit Fiji sometimes in February. And uh, and to start, I mean, the decision of where I'm located is not mine. It is at the end of the day our council that put me in Samoa and it will be the council who decides uh, where I work. Now
1: that was University of the South Pacific Vice-Chancellor, Professor Pal Alwalia. He was speaking there to reporter Nick Fogarty. Tune in to SBS Samoan
4: News on ABC Radio Australia. SBS Samoan News features independent news and stories connecting you to life in Australia and Samoan-speaking Australians by our friends at SBS Australia. SBS Samoan News. Tune in Mondays and Thursdays at 6.05am Samoan time for one hour of news in Samoan language on ABC Radio Australia.
1: You're listening to Pacific Beat, and that's it's that special time in the show where we find out what's making news around the region. I haven't done it for a while. That's probably why I'm stumbling across, over my words. Uh, Carl, you're with us to bring us the the stories. Carl Evans, as you know, uh, how are you? How's it been the couple of weeks that I've been away?
8: It's been good, Priyanka, and yeah. Firstly, welcome, welcome back to the chair. It has been a little Thank while, you. hasn't it?
1: And you you took over for a bit, right? Uh, for for a week here, you were presenting and
8: did, yeah.
1: tables turned.
8: Yeah, we've all still got jobs, luckily, so uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah. now we got through that unscathed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, You did very, very well, Um, but now, business as usual, you're here to bring us some news, and I think this was while you were away, actually, that we had a story about an emergency landing in American Samoa. Now you have another story for us about a flight bound for Australia that made an emergency landing, this time in Fiji. Tell us what happened.
8: Yeah, it's been a bit of a common thread lately, which is concerning if if you're uh, you're a bit of a traveller, but... uh, a Qantas flight bound for Sydney was actually turned back uh, in Fiji yesterday um, after pilots were alerted to fumes uh, in the cabin. Oh, so uh, this is reported by the Sydney Morning Herald this morning, uh, and they say early investigations suggest the fumes uh, were actually related to a, uh, to an incident with the oven uh, in the aircraft galley. Um, Luckily, likely though, the plane landed safely in Nandi, uh, and the passengers are being accommodated for.
1: I never knew there was ovens aboard flights. Yeah. I, I wouldn't expect that would be a recipe for disaster. Um, because this isn't actually the first flight that's been turned back recently, has it?
8: No, it's the fifth uh, this week Gosh. for the Qantas airline alone. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, last week a flight traveling uh, to Sydney from Auckland actually suffered engine failure, uh, resulting in a temporary mayday call. That made that made headlines. I'm, I remember that being a bit of a yes. bit of a talk topic around the water cooler. And uh, yeah, not surprisingly, the, the airline's chief executive has come out to uh, to reassure people that uh, everything's okay. Maintenance issues happen from from time to time, and. Uh, no cause for stress.
1: Yeah, I wonder what is, because when there is so many, there must be something behind it. And Mm. I know there's been a lot of criticism more broadly, not just with Qantas, on the lack of workers and and sort of since the pandemic, not being able to sort of meet demand. Um, I wonder if that might be behind it. But to be honest, Kyle having an emergency stopover in the Pacific is not, is not bad news to me.
8: There's definitely worse places. Yeah, you could stop <laughs> over, that's for sure.
1: Um, and Now, I'm very interested in this. There's some update on Vanuatu's ransomware attack. There's been five months uh, of court data that was lost as a result of it. Is that right? Yeah, that's five right. Months.
8: So the the uh, the legacy of that massive attack is uh, is proving to be an ongoing one uh, that, that has followed the country into the new year. So, uh, Vanuatu Kanawatu's Chief Justice, his name is uh, Vincent Lunabek, said the data from the cases uh, basically well, the data from all the cases from November onwards uh, had not been recorded, uh, and it's going to take six months before that data can be, oh, uh, can be entered back into the system. So he made these comments to the uh, the Vanuatu Daily Post. Um, in some better news, however, he did say the system was getting pretty close to getting back up and running, and they say they should have it back up uh, by February.
1: And what have they been doing in the meantime?
8: Yeah, just the good old-fashioned way, uh, essentially. So uh, after the attack, much much like the government in Vanuatu, they just started have to they started compiling all their cases manually, just, just. Through pen and paper, um, and they were actually able to get a record of the majority of uh, all their performance indicators, even international uh, court performance indicators as well. So, um, yeah, now it's just a matter of catching up on all that uh, all that data entry. Which, uh, yes, I hope it's not just left to the poor old intern. I today. was going to
1: say that. Yes, that's often often the intern um, job, isn't it? All that data entry. Um, now let's head to the United States. Um, activists are calling for President Joe Biden to apologize to the Marshall Islands. Why is that?
8: Yeah, so I feel like I've, I feel like we've heard these these calls a few times actually. So mm. uh, more than a hundred groups, in fact, uh, including Green uh, Greenpeace, Veterans for Peace, uh, and the Arms Control Association, have signed a letter. Uh, ...wanting an official apology uh, for past nuclear tests conducted in the area throughout the 40s and 50s. So this is reported by RNZ. And the letter urges Biden to deliver on promises his administration made... uh, ...regarding justice for those by affected by those tests. And they want it signed before the Compact of Free Association is renewed. I know a couple of countries have signed on to that already. Um, The letter basically states uh, the effects of those tests are still present... uh, ...within the Marshallese community community today in uh, the US ha- hasn't been for- as forthcoming as they should be, and they need to make more efforts to uh, to recompensate for the damage and uh, to the health culture and the
7: economy.
1: Yeah, very interesting stuff. Um, a lot of scrutiny being pay- placed on that um, legacy of nuclear um, testing in Marshall Islands now. And we've got actually got a story coming up right around the corner, Kyle, about the United States uh, negotiating a security deal with Papua New Guinea. And of course, there's Mm. some thoughts about China and and its influence on that uh, upcoming deal as well. And I wonder if if, if it might be prompted to look at this nuclear legacy as well, considering its um, Mm. desire to ramp up influence. And coming up later on the show, I believe you set this up, it's a story about Avatar and its Pacific influences <laughs> as well. Have you seen the movie yet?
8: I have. I actually really enjoyed the second one, to be uh-huh. honest. I thought it was better than the first.
1: Okay, all right. I have seen the first, and I'm, to be honest, I'm not a fan, but very interested to speak to this writer about um, some of the Pacific undertones to that. But in the meantime, thank you, Kyle, for all those new stories. Thank you, Priyanka. That was uh, Kyle Evans bringing us the latest from around the Pacific. You are listening to Pacific Beat. This is uh, Monday morning. You're joined by myself, Priyanka Srinivasan. As Papua New Guinea finalises a defence deal with Australia, it's also negotiating negotiating an agreement with the United States, with high level talks set to be held in Hawaii next month. PNG's Foreign Affairs Minister says the US wants to make its presence felt after China struck a security agreement with Solomon Islands. PNG correspondent Natalie Whiting prepared this report.
3: My question is, Internal Security Minister. Why can't we go and In
5: Papua New Guinea's Australian parliament Government, this week, MPs were pushing for details uh, of the security education. treaty PNG plans to sign with Australia.
3: Our security, our stability, our cohesion directly adds to Australia's security. During Anthony Albanese's Resilience.
5: visit last week, so the two governments committed to, to the signing the deal by the middle of the year. But they're not the only defence discussions PNG has been having recently. The country is also working on a new agreement with the United States. A high-level delegation will be travelling to Honolulu next month as the countries work to finalise a defence cooperation agreement. PNG's Foreign Affairs Minister Justin Tachenko says the agreement will lay the legal and administrative groundwork for future engagement.
3: It will also help with PNG and America's investment into capacity building of the PNG Defence Force in training, infrastructure. But it's a big one that will ensure that uh, we have that uh, cooperation agreement that will have both Defence Forces working together now and in the future for the security of the uh, Pacific region.
5: Mr Duchenko says the focus of the agreement is on cooperation and assisting PNG.
3: It's not a situation where we will have uh, warships and, uh, and maybe... Yes, training is is definitely one, but not one of uh, building up the US forces uh, here.
5: In April last year, a high-level Washington delegation visited the Pacific in response to China signing a security pact with PNG's neighbour Solomon Islands. At the time, the US said the two countries had a desire to take concrete steps to expand their security cooperation. Discussions around the defence agreement then began at the first Pacific Island Leaders Summit, which was held in Washington in September.
3: The uh, United States of America have taken a fairly uh, serious role uh, now in the Pacific uh, since uh, China and uh, Solomon Islands have had their uh, agreement, which um, has uh, created a Tsunami throughout uh, the Pacific region.
5: Mr. Dechenko is hoping the deal can be finalised around the middle of the year. He says PNG respects its relationship with China and is only furthering security ties it's always had with traditional partners.
3: So we could keep to our traditional partners in defence and in security, utilise the situation for the betterment of uh, our country, our sovereignty, and also what we're trying to achieve now and into the future.
5: And you're not worried PNG is being used to further Australian or US interests?
3: Not at all, not at all. Um, we've made that very clear from day one. Uh, we are here to work with our security partners and, uh, but also them to assist us to build our capacity in our region so we can protect our own sovereignty at the same time.
5: The ABC contacted the US Embassy in Papua New Guinea for comment on the Defence Cooperation Agreement but hasn't received a response.
1: And that was PNG's correspondent Natalie Whiting with that report.
3: Join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. I'll be interviewing incredible guests and discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women.
0: I'd never been in the political scenario. I, I'd never voted until I voted for myself. But I made this crazy decision to stand, so I knew I had to work really, really hard.
3: So join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. Wednesdays at 3.30pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia.
1: And now it's time to pull out some popcorn here on Pacific Feet as we delve into some of the possible Pacific inspirations behind a hit blockbuster film.
2: Treat them as our brothers and sisters. Teach them our ways. Keep up for us, boy! If you want to live
6: here, you have to ride. Let's do it.
1: That's a snippet from the new movie Avatar, The Way of Water. And if you've seen the film, you might have noticed a distinct Pacific flavor throughout the movie. Commentators like Scott Hamilton, who's a Pacific sociologist, writer and historian, have noticed the plot, some of the scenes and even some of the characterizations have some strong links to the region. To uh, speak to us more about that, we're joined by Scott himself. Good morning to you, Scott. Cura. Oh, um, Now, take me through what you have seen. I have not seen this latest Avatar movie yet. I have seen the first one, though. Um, what have you seen in terms of Pacific inspiration that you suspect might be behind the film?
4: Well, I didn't have the choice of not seeing it because my, <laughs> uh, my oldest son absolutely demanded we see it as soon as <laughs> possible. Um, and, you know, putting the first and the second films together, I think there's a, a whole lot of, Visual images, but also themes, uh, and and these have resonated in, in parts of the Pacific. Um, just visually, uh, the landscape of uh, Pandora, the moon, uh, where where the action is set, uh, it, it appears to owe a great debt to some of the Pacific islands. It has it has some of the uh, some of the features that we associate with various pacific islands um this, there there to be um uh, you know, quite spectacular coral walls there are upthrust mountains there are volcanoes so it's a for anyone who's traveled through the pacific it's a quite a familiar landscape um but we also see uh in the in the indigenous people of pandora um various traits of pacific culture perhaps the most striking in the new film is the is the tattooing which seems to be uh very much modeled on the Maori moko you know mm-hmm. the 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 uh the way that uh, Maori people were were tattooed and are still tattooed
6: mm-hmm.
4: um this seems a quite direct borrowing but also some of the situations in the films uh, uh resonate with the colonial history of the Pacific uh the uh, protagonist of the films Jake Sully he comes to Pandora as a soldier uh, ready to participate in the subjugation of the indigenous people. And then he turns, he discovers an affinity with the Navi, with the indigenous people. And he, uh, to use his term from the 19th century, he goes native. Mm. And uh, he ends up fighting against the force that that's centered there. So he becomes an anti-imperialist. And this is a fascinating phenomenon that, goes right through 19th century Pacific history. Um, for instance, the very first missionary who went to Tonga, George Mason, he went native and he got tattooed and uh, you know, he, he took native wives. He participated in local war. He became a landowner. He became a powerful person and he completely rejected the Christian civilization that had sent him there. And And this recurs again and again. It's the lure of the Pacific and the ability of the Pacific to overturn uh, the values of European visitors. And So I feel that Jake Sully really is a is a character out of Pacific history.
1: Yes, very interesting. And I know in the Captain Cook's voyages as well, a lot of the crewmen ended up uh, on Pacific Islanders and and unwilling to go back onto the boat. Uh, I mean, considering that those sort of parallels that you've made, uh, have you heard of the film studio or Avatar's director or anyone involved coming out to confirm your suspicions at all?
4: No, no, there's no confirmation. It's interesting, though, because in the minds of a lot of Pacific people who've watched it, uh, there's no doubt. Um, I've spent quite a bit of time on the island of Eowa in Tonga. It's a a beautiful island, uh, thinly populated, uh, um, quite mountainous. And they have an enormous tree there. Uh, It's a mighty bunion tree, and you stand in its shade, and uh, you're just absolutely dwarfed by it. And they... They associate this tree with the Awa tree in um, Pandora. Mm. the Awa tree is the is the tree of life and it has a connection to 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 the indigenous people and so you know it it seems almost obvious to them that their island was a uh, was a kind of a model, but in terms of actually you know, the next question is, did James Cameron come here? It's like, oh, he might have come here in disguise or something, you know. So there's, there's no sort of firm evidence, but there is, a, there is a widespread belief that different Pacific landscapes are echoed in the film quite deliberately.
1: Mm, well, James Cameron is New Zealander himself, so um, I guess it, it wouldn't be a too much of a stretch of the imagination to think that he was inspired by some of the islands around him. But you know we're we're talking about this plot here, and and I, I might have a bit of a, a bone to pick about it um, with you, Scott. I uh, would love to hear your thoughts because I've seen that first movie, and I was struck with some of the problematic features of it. I mean, portraying indigenous, potentially Pacific Island um, inspired tribes as aliens, unknown to mm-hmm. you know the the protagonist. And then we have these stereotypes of them being very close to nature, a sort of noble, savage um, nod, it seems. And then it seems like they need someone of European descent to come there to become one of them, yeah. to save them. I mean, is that, is that a concern to you?
4: Yeah, and I, I think that's another echo of the 19th century and colonialism in the Pacific. Uh, the white saviour complex, the notion that it takes a white man to come and um, and save the natives, and you're quite sh- you're quite right about this this whole idea of living close to nature and hunter gathering. This is only one mode uh, in the Pacific o- of living, and if we look at numerous specific societies, say Tonga, for example, they have in- had incredibly sophisticated agricultural systems um, before the arrival. Of Europeans, and mm-hmm. they also had quite hierarchical societies, and really they had proto-states. And so uh, it is, it is a gross simplification to, to pretend that, uh, um, that these people—I mean—that this is this is the only way for indigenous people to live mm. um, right now in, in Tonga there is some very very sophisticated art and architecture being created which draws on western modernism but which remakes it in a tongan way and uh, and so yes it is there that is a problematic feature without a doubt yeah um
1: I'd like to see a film about that, about Tongan architecture and and some of the modern elements of that. And there's another aspect here. I mean, you mentioned some of the the tattooing and possible nods to the Maori moka there in in the new Avatar film. I mean, looking at the cast list, there doesn't seem to be many or any Pacific Islander casts there, um, nor I'm not sure if there's any Pacific Islander consultants as well is is that a problem that you think that some things might have been borrowed but not necessarily um, hired or recognized in an um, outright, outright way
4: oh absolutely I mean I'm not defending James Cameron at all and the films are problematic in, in numerous ways although my son won't won't agree with me on that; <laughs> it's his favorite film of all time but um the what what interests me is is not so much the way Cameron produced the films, but the way that the films are reinvented uh, and reappropriated by Pacific peoples. Mm. There's this concept in in the Maori um, of fa'akahaua, where you devour something and it becomes part of you and it becomes part of your mana. And I'm really interested in the way that people, like for instance, the people of Aotearoa, will take Avatar and make it into something that's their own, and an emblem of their own pride on their island. And this has happened before with other films, with the most unlikely films. It happened with Rambo. um, Back in the 1980s, um, in many parts of the Pacific, um, screens were still inaccessible, so people used to act movies out. That was the way that movies were transmitted. And, And, for instance, in the remote parts of Tonga, uh, Rambo was acted out in a new way. So that Rambo was actually a Tongan and he was fighting Japanese in World War Two. And and this kind of reappropriation of of films, um, you know, is is yeah, it's very creative and it puts the indigenous people who are who are doing the recreation right at the center of the world. Yeah. So, um So I I find that fascinating.
1: Yeah, that is fascinating, Scott. I don't know if you've heard about um, The Phantom in Papua New Guinea being um, in a similar way reappropriated and and, um, I I understand um, is is present in a lot of the shields and and a lot of the traditional cultures. So what do you think is behind that? Why why do you believe some of these films strike a chord and and end up being reappropriated in such a way?
4: Well, I think, you know, there's a... There's a desire to take over something powerful and to use it uh, as an emblem for for local pride. Um, you know, another another place where Rambo was reappropriated was Bougainville during the conflict with the Papua New Guinea state and uh, the rebels of the Bougainville Revolutionary Army. They actually began to wear red bandanas like Rambo, and they called themselves the Rambos. And supposedly they used Rambo videos for training uh, and you know, mm-hmm. when they were tra- practicing for battle. And it's it just this sense of, of, of taking something which was globalizing and, and, and that's kind of alienating and reclaiming it and turning it into an emblem of local pride.
1: Yeah, very interesting. And, and we are, for those t- tuning in here on Pacific Beat, we're talking about that new movie, Avatar, The Way of Water. If you've seen it, it, it seems to have quite a few nods to, um, Pacific, uh, culture and history. Um, but perhaps even, you know, some, some nods to tattooing, uh, here in the Pacific. Um, now, Scott, you are a Pacific sociologist, writer, and historian. And I've heard of some movies actually hiring academics like yourself as consultants for some of these films, um, one that comes to mind is the Disney film "Moana," which had a, a team of Pacific Islander consultants um, there who knew about the culture, who had studied the history. Um, what do you think about that? We don't know if Avatar had such a team. They haven't come out and you know said anything about the Pacific influences in their film. But in the future, do you think that's why a wise thing for some of these films to do?
4: It probably is, but I think just by the nature of, of of Hollywood, just just by the nature of these films, they 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 tend to be pretty pretty loose and pretty imprecise and pretty alienating. I mean, Moana did have a team of people uh, helping. But you nevertheless you got this sort of mash up in Moana, where you had uh, one scene with Tokelauan language and another scene which is based on a completely different culture. There's a sort of tendency in Hollywood films to conflate all of the Pacific cultures, mm. and um it becomes quite problematic um, I, yeah, I think um the great thing about Moana is that it addressed it addressed a real historical mystery, and I think it's one of the great mysteries, which is that the Polynesians after sort of founding their society in uh, Tonga, Samoa, Old Polynesia, there was then a long pause before they began voyaging further and discovering what we now call Eastern Polynesia, places like uh, Tahiti, Hawaii, Aotearoa. And and this long pause is a big subject for debate amongst academics. And Moana actually made that the centre of the plot, which mm. I thought was pretty neat. Um, and so so I, I thought that was a neat bit. But certainly there were a number of Polynesian critics of Moana who argued that it dealt with, you know, aspects of Polynesian culture in a very um, ham-fisted way. Yes. So I don't know if we can ever expect that much from Hollywood. What <laughs> I think is great is the way that Indigenous peoples take it and remake
1: it. Yes, indeed. As you've been touching on, Scott, yeah, very interesting stuff. And hopefully we'll see maybe a Pacific-made film uh, about the culture and history here very soon. Thank you so much for your time this morning on Pacific Beat.
4: No, very, great to talk to you.
1: And that was uh, Scott Hamilton speaking to us about that latest Avatar movie, The Way of Water and all the other uh, Pacific uh, influences that we might be seeing in our films have you seen the movie? Uh, do you have any thoughts on its plot line and, um, you know, concerns around cultural appropriation? Do get in touch with here with us on ABC Pacific. Until then, I hope you have a lovely day.